So when you hear the phrase, everything new is old again, what do you think of? Maybe you think of the Bible verse that this saying reportedly comes from, which is from Ecclesiastes, and says, That which is done is that is which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Myself, every time I hear of it, I think of that classic song from my all-time favorite musical, All That Jazz, with the awesome lyric, Don't throw the past away, you might need it some rainy day. Dreams can come true again when everything old is new again. It's about growing up and rediscovering that joy in growing up. Growing up and discovering that one day you've got more food in your fridge than beer. Or when you hear your favorite song in an elevator. Or sadly, as I have recently, in a drug commercial. Yeah, that's right. Or when eating a triple cheeseburger at 2 a.m. sounds more dangerous than awesome. Or you don't have to worry if Domino's takes checks. You don't remember the last time you threw a brick of ramen into a cup of boiling water? You might have grown up. And that's our theme for this week's show. Everything old is new again, and the art of growing up, the world of marketing. It's a lot more enjoyable once you start to appreciate the classics. You ready to grow up? Let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 125 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Friday, April 1st, 2016. April Fool's Day. And with me, as always, it's my friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the youngest-looking man in content, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you? Oh, is that is that your April Fool's joke? The <laughs> young- well, see, I thought you were going to do an opening around April Fools, but you didn't I, this time. You know, that is my April Fools' joke. See, there you go. It's so meta. It's the meta. It's the meta April Fools' joke that there isn't one. Ooh, oh, that's see what I did that's there. That's Nice. <laughs> To not, yeah, that's that's. I actually hate April Fools' jokes. I really do. I, it's it's my least favorite time. Because I I, do, I I hate surprises and I don't like yeah. when people trick me and so basically exactly. I I usually huddle in a corner sucking my thumb so that nobody <laughs> wow like bothers me it usually works pretty I just well, shut up by the way. it's like you can't believe anything in the news right you look at the news and some tech company has got oh look we made hopscotch day in our cafeteria it's like no it's an April Fool's joke oh that's funny and so yeah it's like because it, you, yeah you then you look at those things and you're like remember when it was so nice you didn't have social media. And you didn't have all the companies <laughs> thinking that they would be really right. cool if they did this stuff. Right, oh, exactly. So. exactly. I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my yard. <laughs> <laughs> I, miss, I, I so miss the days of just print only. That, that, was, yeah. that was it. And, like, it was really – you had to really consider the time and effort you were going to take to put into something. <laughs> I really miss that. Because yeah, now it's so easy exactly. for everyone. Just oh, just yeah, you can just of dash off any old stupid joke and try and make it funny. Yeah. So that's where that's our call to arms. Nobody do anything. <laughs> just don't. Nobody just, do anything. Well, by the time this which airs. Would be the greatest April Fool's, well, we're, we're, it would be the greatest April Fool's joke ever in the history of mankind if nobody did any April Fool's joke. Awesome. And then everybody went, April Fool's. Well, we can't even warn people because we're recording this a couple days early just because you've got a big trip and I've got I'm going on my golf thing. So that's right. And then nobody will hear it. And we want everybody to just not participate in April Fool's. <laughs> just don't. Just, just stop it. Stop. Resist. <laughs> Resist the urge. 
All right. Did we, do you uh, have yeah, any announcements have, uh, this week? Do you, news? You, what do we have? Did we have? Did we we have? definitely have news. We definitely have news here. So let's uh, start with our first story, which comes to us courtesy of Broadcasting Cable. So this one I had to say I was a little excited about because this takes me back to my days in TV. I used to read Broadcasting and Cable like every single week when it came out. And I was like, wow, there's a content marketing article in Broadcasting and Cable? I'm I'm in. So anyway, it comes to us courtesy of Broadcasting and Cable. And it's basically talking about a study from someone we know and love. And the headline is Companies Favoring Content Over Ads. And this is a study that was done um, by Scribble Live, who I guess full transparency has been a, a, a friend and sponsor. Yeah, they've of been a great supporter. So thank you for the disclaimer. Absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca Lieb, who we absolutely adore. One of my favorite people in the industry. So she wrote a white paper and they conducted a study together to look at brands and content. And the article opens up by saying click-through rates on banner ads have already hit rock bottom. 94% of online viewers skip pre-roll ads before five seconds have gone by. And an estimated 12% of display ads are never seen by humans, translating into $18.5 billion in ad spend waste in 2015, according to a new report. And this is where this report comes in, where it talks about how Rebecca uh, wrote this report about uh, all of these wonderful things in content marketing. And she includes dozens of, of, of top brands that are doing this, including MasterCard and Marriott, of course, and Visa. And what did you think? Did you did you get a chance to read through the whole study? I, I read through a good portion of it. So I, I did yeah. my due diligence and went through. And this is gotcha. my – so this is my take. I, I, <clears throat> I'm, of course – this is a pro-content marketing report. This yeah. is a – I wouldn't say it's an anti-advertising, but in a lot of ways, it's like, hey, advertising effectiveness is on the decline. What are you going to do to create amazing experiences with your customers? This content marketing thing. What are you going to do with your life? (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, Rebecca goes on and on about, and even says that content marketing and its underlying content strategy has emerged as the savior. I don't know if I would say that, but that may be a little bit overextended. That's the stuff that gets us into trouble. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I mean, because we, you know, we believe, you and I both believe that content marketing can work with advertising and with public relations, and it makes everything a little bit better. You know, it's not, it's not content marketing or advertising. It's nothing like that. So that's right. My, my, my take is I agree with the majority of this. I agree that these marketers from these really big brands are saying that this is of critical importance, that they want to move away from advertising. And I absolutely believe hardly any of them are going to do so. <laughs> so is that a rant? I don't know. <laughs> but I, 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 I don't think – I think that most of and, – and by the way, not particularly to these brands, but just brand – not the ones that she interviewed, but brands in general. I think what we've seen, and we've seen this over and over for the past three, four, five years, where they're – spending more on content marketing. It's at the top of their list of things that they want to do. They're all gung-ho around it. And then they still focus on campaigns. They still focus on product-centric content. They're still focusing on too many audiences at one time. So this is my concern with this type of report. While I love it and I want to believe in it, is that you've got these marketers out there that aren't going to do it right and they're just going to make it harder for us, for you and I and everyone that's a content marketing practitioner in the future because they're going to come out and say, oh, it just didn't work. Or you're going to get the yeah. naysayers and talk about, of course, the death of content marketing or the death sure, of everything of else. So that's – I don't know if you agree with any of that. That's my 
That's my take. Well, so here's what I'll say. I'll say all of the above is true, right? So I, I will tell you this. My, my own experience in the, in the brands this year, I mean literally the first three months of this year that we're now in. So here we are, April 1. We've got three full months behind us. The number of brands I've spoken to oh, – 15 or 20 different brands in various capacity, whether it's a workshop or an advisory session or at different events that I've been to. And I can tell you that the seriousness with which they're taking the change management part of content marketing has at least resonated to the point of they're, they're, they're serious about at least trying. Okay. Um, and so I see a report like this and I go, great, this is awesome. You know, it, it feels like this report is, you know, uh, you know, it, it's something that we might have read, you know, last year, um, you know, evangelizing the practice and then it's really great. And then ads, you know, that, you know, the performance of ads are down and all that kind of stuff. And that the hard work, you know, th- what this report doesn't get into is sort of the hard work to actually make the change. And so but I'm starting to see that a report like this actually helps because what it does is that it sort of tips the scales toward the serious discussion that has to be had. And so, you know, you can equally argue that, well, that wasn't the job of this report. This report was not meant to sort of outline the hard, arduous work of making the change to exactly all the stuff you said. The job of this report was to help tip the scales toward a business case that leads us down to that path. And so, um, I, I, you know, so, so for that, I'm grateful for Absolutely, its existence. Absolutely, yes. So I'm grateful for its existence. Um, and I think the realities that you and I live in for sort of this inside baseball, let's make sure that we're getting, you know, rolling up our sleeves and actually getting this stuff done. It feels, you know, this feels a little, it feels a little, you know, like a classic song, right? It's on the radio. It's like, yeah, I, I got it. I know the words to this. I can hum the tune. I can, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. For those that are just getting into tipping the business case over to something serious, I think it can be very valuable. Well, and, and even – I totally agree with that. And the one thing I would say is, is that you and I had many conversations with marketers in January, February, where they didn't know where content marketing was going to go. They didn't yeah, know if they were exactly going to get right. their budgets. They didn't know how much buy-in. I mean, that's why we were pushing the documentary, the story of content so much, because we're like, you, you know, get that buy-in. Reports like this help. But now, of, of course, now in April, March and then now April, we've, we've seen a change. I think you and I would both agree. Would you not agree that we've sort of seen this change where, okay, yes, we're getting more of this buy-in. Budgets have released a little bit. We're starting to see more spending around this. Because I think you and I, because, of course, we talked about it. I, I talked about it in the keynote at Content Marketing. Marketing world last year that we were in this trough of disillusionment and it was going to be more challenging, which it is more challenging. But I thought we always thought that we hit the bottom there for a while, but it yeah. sort of cleaned itself up and now we're, we're yeah. sort of on the path again. I think, I think in large degree, what I've seen sort of at a macro level is the growth of customer experience and the focus on customer centricity um, and sort of the sort of real need and and th- this is you know you can argue it but it, it's not terribly productive to argue it the need for companies to understand from a data perspective what they're doing across all these digital channels and what you know where they're having the best effect because it's just become so you know it's a this ocean is a mile wide and an inch deep and and so Trying, trying to figure out where to actually put your dollars and cents, you've got to have the data to do it. And content marketing is a great way to start to derive 
insight into the behavior of your customer at a much more intimate level. But to do that, you've got to deliver value to them. So the business case to me is becoming clearer even from – you know, because what I think we're seeing a lot of is that companies are sort of realizing, you know what? It's not always about leads. Right? It's great if it is and it's great if it's sort of helping our advertising perform better. But truly what are the asset we're trying to build here is a data-rich audience that we can monetize in different ways. And content is a bridge for us yeah. to get to that asset, which is that audience. And so that business case seems to be really resonating at the C level now. And so it makes the building of these customer experiences, whether you call that a blog or an email newsletter or a webinar program or a print magazine or a TV network or whatever you do, it makes the business case to make for that a lot, you know, a lot, a lot clearer. So there's there's three things I wanted before we go on to the next topic. There's three quick things I wanted to point out that I wanted to get one of your takes on on this, but uh, the first one was under the recommendations of building a customer centric marketing strategy. Number one, I just have to say, create a foundational content strategy before pr- pursuing specific tactics. This is a must, and still yeah, most exactly. companies don't do this. We go straight to the blog, the, the yep. podcast, the Snapchat thing, whatever they're doing, instead of form, formalizing an integrated content marketing strategy. So that's, that's key. Right. The second thing is, and this reminded me of your presentation, and you've done this many times, but uh, where the buyer's journey, especially in B2B, if you were going to follow all the way along, it, B2C too, but if you're going to follow along in the buyer's journey, it's almost – impossible it, it, it there's there's too many it's right. changing so fast there's too many That's decision right. points and what i like that you said and i can't remember if you said this in sydney when we did content marketing sydney or, or whenever the first time but you said focus on three key points in time on that journey one was at the awareness level one was at the the pre-purchase level nurturing, nurturing level, level yeah. and yeah. one was at the post-purchase level and just create exactly this wonderful right. loyalty driven if, uh, um, experience and I That's love right. that, and I think that can still play for most companies. Just forget I, I, about every little j- bit of that journey and focus on just getting these three right before you do anything exactly. else. If you get the three That's right, exactly then you right. can go and really look into it, the fifty-seven it's, points. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's part of the masterclass is where, is where that really is. I wonder. Is I've now. seen it a so, thousand times, I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. Like, where did I so, see it? Well, every time that Robert <laughs> right, every time we, Every time I open my mouth, yeah. I mean, basically, I say, look, the buyer's journey is too complex. There are so many micro decisions, a million micro decisions, and you'll never map a piece of content to every single one. Stop trying. Stop, you know, get over yourself. You're not going to do it. Instead, be remarkable at a strategic few steps. In other words, pick one, an awareness experience, a loyalty nurturing experience, a loyalty experience, whatever it is that you – where does it hurt the most basically and create something so remarkable that the only outcome for that customer having gone through that experience is that they want another. And if you can meet that criteria, if you can create an experience so wonderfully valuable to them that their main desire in coming out of it is that they want another one, well then serve them up something. And then it's it's just the, if you've done you've done your work. That is the key. One of the things that my friend Tim Walter says all the time is what I love is you know when you look at customer experience management you know sort of as a practice uh, as a whole which has been around forever of course you know the customer experience is basically the totality of all of the individual experiences 
And so, and that seems like, well, duh, that's sort of, you know, recursive yeah. thinking there. But, but, but if you think about that for a second, it's like from the first time we meet a customer to the time that we create them as loyal and evangelistic and wanting to share our story across all the social channels, et cetera, et cetera. If we can create experiences at every step along the way, and that's marketing's real remit these days, is to pick the few experiences where we can be remarkable, well, then we are affecting the totality of the customer experience, which lays over the product or service that we're in the marketplace to provide. And so to me, that's such a clear mandate for marketing these days is our job is to create these remarkable experiences for customers so that their sole desire is to have another with us. You know, it's so funny. In your newsletter, uh, whatever, a week and a half ago, you talked about the personalizing personalization of content and how you right. got all these marketers yeah. are talking. And, and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And I think to just to get to this. You're always ahead of well, me. You're always ahead of me. No, it's a little bit different. Your take was good. It was just a little bit different. But, you know, in, in at Intelligent Content Conference, Karen yeah. McGrain was talking about adaptive versus um, responsive. And basically right. the whole idea was, look, responsive gets you 95% of the way there. Then you can worry about adaptive. And I think that's the same thing you and I were talking about th- this exact topic, but personalizing content where you're – why are you moving so far ahead? You don't even have a basic, you know, That's a right. basic simple That's experience right. at a certain level, right? And yet you want to go to personalized content. I was talking to when I was in, exactly I think right. I mentioned this, but when I was in Milwaukee for the BMA Milwaukee event, I was talking with a great group. They uh, work at a hospital and they were talking about that. That was their big initiative was personalizing their content. And I said, well, how's your do you have a content marketing strategy? They said, no, they ha- they're working on the content marketing strategy now. And I said, for- forget about personalization of content. <laughs> exactly. That's way down. I mean, you, you're, you haven't learned to drive you're, yet and you're thinking about going to Mars. That's the warning of the yeah. fourth quarter and you're, you're at the <laughs> exactly. coin flip. I yeah. mean, come on. And I think that's the same thing with this whole idea of you know the, the experiences at certain portions. Anyway, the last thing I want to get yeah. you taken, I have to say this because I don't get it. But Uh-oh. this is not Rebecca's thing this is pq media and we've talked about it on oh, this before yeah, i know what you're going to talk i know what you're so going to th- talk about there's yeah. pq so th- they're saying that the content marketing industry is a hundred i'm reading this right uh, like 190 billion dollars for 2016 well, i certainly hope it is i i hope it is mister because whoa, 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 i've got bills to pay <laughs> what, <laughs> what? Where that was where that is was, this that, that was yeah, that was my that was my best uh, 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 I can't remember who the guy is but the the guy on, the, the the grandfather on Family Guy anyway sorry I'm, I'm sure somebody it. got it I'm yeah, sure somebody yeah. out there was like oh yeah that's what it was yeah. where yeah. where are we getting where's this money coming from I don't yeah. well that's like the ID, IDC has a number too IDC's number is like 130 billion or it's something a, like that which is Cray cray. This number I mean, says three hundred and thirteen yeah. billion dollars in two thousand nineteen. It's a lot of money. I, I just and I guess the point is I, I'm just sort of ranting on that. I don't know how you can get that number, even if it is a correct number. I don't know how you get that because uh, there's your if you go into a big enterprise, there's so many different budgets, and the content marketing budget is is infused in PR and communications and oh, IT. Sure. And then maybe marketing and also advertising. I mean, it's on and on. So I don't, I don't know how that's possible. You can get that number. So it's a very, it's, a, it's, you know, I don't know how you get. I don't even know what methodology you would use to to get an actual market sizing number because 
it's you know you it's like where do you draw the line right where do you draw the line about the the company creating content and 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 so you know it would be an in- extraordinary number what's to come the up number with. for advertising spend well but that's an easier number to come right because it's it's it, it's your what you're what you're measuring there is the amount of money spent on media yes. properties, yeah, I, digital, television, radio. Totally agree with that. But what, it, what it, do you know around the number? I'm putting you on the spot. I don't even know. Oh, what I, do, I, do, I don't know the number off the top I think of it, But it's, the, I, I want to say it's in the $500 billion. Yeah, the, this number like is, is catching up to media spend. We're not there yet, folks. Right. I'm sorry. It's not happening. Yeah. That, 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 right. We're way too far away from that. And if, it, right. if that is right, then I'm retiring, if that's right. <laughs> so there you go. Really? I'm putting my proverbial stick in the sand flag in the sand that's it i'm done if that's the case because i can't i just can't believe that number uh, is it time for the advertiser if sponsor yet or do we no, <laughs> did we not. talk about any we, other articles yeah, exactly here? we do okay. here's our next story here uh, on the show and this guy's speaking of advertising this comes to us courtesy of ad week um and it's it basically uh, the, 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 the article is, is really about a new study, so another research study here that we're going to talk about, about retailers and why they should ramp up their email game. And I know you're going to love this because, you know, this is all about email. Yeah. This opens up by saying, Epsilon's new shopper behavior study may be the latest indication that millennial consumers are no longer spring chickens. In fact, they are using and hold on to your Oh my God! I didn't even I didn't read this the right way the first time. So it says, "Hold on to your ironic fedoras, folks." Uh, email more than people of other places and ages to find products and services. So, do we believe this? Millennials are using email more than anything else. I mean, that would be shocking to me, but I think it's fascinating. I hope this is true. I really do. I'm I'm hoping and praying that this is a true stat because if it is, then we're just a bunch of silly marketers out there that we think that. Well, so basically. Uh, according to Epsilon study here, 43% of millennials compared to 32% of other shoppers. So at a right. higher rate that they check out retailers' emails more often in the past six months. Here's the other thing. Uh, 47% of Gen Yers compared to 34% of everyone else used printable coupons in the last six months. Now, that could be because they're not making as much money. But right. they're they're actually printing out coupons. The fact that they have a printer amazes me. Where the- <laughs> well, that's Gen Y. That's me. That's that's me, right? That's Jets or not Gen Y? That's I'm sorry. I read that. You're I read X. That Gen Xers. Yeah, Gen you're, X. You're, sorry. you're X. We're X. Gen well, you X. and I are X. Yeah, no, Gen they're y. printing coupons. Yeah. And so I, I yeah. guess I guess the point is is that I think, and we've talked about this at, at nausea on the show, but I think we've we've so run to the digital that sometimes we forget that. Sometimes the simplest, longest-running things are the most effective. Um, and I guess the other thing is we're not all targeting millennials. We're, I mean, regardless, well, regardless of yeah. that. Regardless yeah, of that, it's almost like it seems like this for some, whatever reasons, like everybody just wants to target millennials. And, and But what? here's the thing. I mean, I thought, yes, I've gone off on a rant about that before. And interestingly enough, that was, you know, that, that's that been something of late that I've just seen people sort of having a big fatigue about, which is the idea of millennials and stuff like that. But the main – what this really tells me, <clears throat> which I think is really interesting, is if millennials are responding to email – then the whole argument about email dying or phasing away because of young people is an erroneous argument. In other words, it's like you, you, the, the argument that says, well, 
we like email, but we're really migrating to social or we're migrating to this other platform because are the younger people as they're aging into our demographic, they don't use it. This apparently isn't true. And so it, it raises – it not only raises the tide of the email strategy for hitting young people, but it also raises the tide and the strategy of raising for email for everybody because if it's you – know, in other words, there is no there, – if there is no phase out, well, then email is still you – know, as, as the theme of the show was, what's old is new again, right? It's, it's, it's really about you – know, it, it's really about using this classic – now classic – uh, delivery channel to address an audience, and I think it's I think it's incredibly you know I think it's incredibly valuable. Well, that's the thing too. We saw the and here's I've talked about this. I I I can't stand it. I always talk about this, but I'm going to do it again <laughs> because I, I can't stand I can't myself. Stand myself. I'm going to do it myself. again. This happened with print, but we didn't have the stats to back it up. I was in so many meetings saying, "Oh, it's a great point. This is a great." Point. I was in that's so many meetings point. that said that we're going to move from. Our, of our print magazine that's been working really well that our customers love and one of the reasons why they continue to sign up and we're going to move it to digital because everybody's going digital and it's a heck of a lot cheaper. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many of those conversations I got in and and they, they are working with flawed data. Now, we didn't have a lot of the data to say it was going to, to move over. So I think the same thing happened. It's like we gave up on a distribution mechanism that was working because we believed that this new generation was not going to engage in content that way. And the same thing has been happening with email that you and I have been fighting. And here is a, here's a stat that says, well, email does work. And yeah. what if print does work? And we know it does. And it's just – that's just the frustrating thing, and and by the way, uh, you know, back to print, it's just less cluttered, as well. It's just you just can't well, track and that, it as well. And that, That's yeah, the and that, and, and maybe, and I didn't, you know, I didn't see that in these in these numbers, and maybe that starts to become an interesting corollary here, right? Where we start looking at email as sort of not ironically, right? It's not a hipster thing, but we, but we, but we look at email as sort of a. Uh, you know, we saw, we talked about it last uh, two weeks ago when we talked about Avinash um, sort of moving to an email newsletter. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and we've talked about other people. You know, um, uh, the guy you talk about all the time, the podcaster on fire. Oh, John Lee um, Dumas, John Lee Dumas on fire. Yeah, yeah, and who's who's moved to an email newsletter to try and address his audience and sort of really even some of the more forward leaning. Um, you know, sort of uh, podcasters and YouTube stars and brands are sort of leaning back on this sort of classic um, format of email as a means of saying, you know what, this is a way that we can address you and at least deliver something to your inbox in a really cool in a really cool way. And I think it's um, I think it may you know it's kind of like a it's it's like a comfortable pair of jeans, right? You just sort of get into them, and it's this that this, this it fits. So let's use. Well, it. regardless of all that, we have no other choice right now, right? Because well, what we got, we point. just talked about yeah, last week on, about the Instagram thing. So you know, of course, Instagram's not going to show our content if we want. That's to. right. Facebook doesn't show it if we want to. LinkedIn's not going. Nobody's going to show our content. So where do we have some any kind of control? We have control yeah, with email right. first, second with print. Um, that's right. So it's you know that's on my little hierarchy that I talk about in all my presentations. <laughs> yeah, the, right. The, the, the yay, the boo, yay scale. boo scale. Yeah. Yay for email and print. <laughs> boo for Facebook. 
you know so and until the whole canvas thing came about where i'm really excited is, is that thing launched yet by the way no, the the announcement comes on uh, the eighth of April. Yeah, because I, I think want, so. Just just next week, I think. I want to be. Uh, yeah, I want to be uh, getting some email addresses off of that and see if it, <laughs> see if it works. I'm gonna be testing that. I want to be a billionaire. So okay, let's move on. Um, and the next story, our last story for the show, is comes to us courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and in the headline is The Rise of the Publishing Platform Specialist. This is something we talked about, I don't know, about seven or eight shows ago. Yeah. But I, I, this, is a, this is a story that is I, – I, I love this story for so many reasons. But the article opens up by saying publishers now have a range of platforms to choose from beyond their own websites and apps to get digital content in front of consumers. Facebook hosts publishers' content on Instant Article. Uh, Apple is pushing out stories through its news app. Snapchat is showcasing media outlets' videos on articles on its Discover features. Uh, But with new options come new headaches. As publishing companies grapple with these emerging platforms and strive to understand how they can best be used to help their business, a new job function is rapidly being created, the platform relationship specialist. The article goes on to describe this not as just someone who updates the ultimately the social channels and all the different platforms, but rather someone whose job it is to actually strategically look at all these platforms and figure out how they contextually work within the business. And I think this is such a smart thing that I'm starting to see even some brands adopt now, really looking at social and all the different publishing platforms and native platforms and technologies as a specialist to understand where from a content perspective should we be? Not just managing the content, not just publishing it through Hootsuite, not just looking at the content analytics, but rather looking at them as strategic partners about where do we want to reach audiences. And I think it's a, I think it's a job title for the future. I really well, do. you want to be the platform relationship specialist at Tinder. I think it's what. Oh no! Right? Oh dear! <laughs> oh dear! Really? You go in there? Go, I did. <laughs> I, that just happened. Uh, oh, there's so many other places to come I before know, Tinder, my friend. The, there is so this is, many other this places. This is the new. Um, I mean, we used to have production managers. Uh, that that yeah. was their role, and their their role was to have a relationship with the printer and to figure out you know what made sense and how what we're going to run and how we're going to run it. Now you have that with all your social channels. You have it with email. You have it with the website. You have it with marketing automation. And I think it's interesting. So we have those things set up already. It seems for email we have it for website the web dev team or the it team and now we're creeping into marketing automation but social's just all over the place especially with google amp and then you know you got instant articles which we may or may not do and the, i think it's a super smart move i i wonder i'm wondering how big of a problem this needs to be like how big of a company before you would start to look at that do you have any idea what you're seeing on some of the brands you talk to well the the the, the ones that are making it a dedicated job are as you might expect big large yeah. complex brands right where they're where they're what they're trying to do is you know one of the bigger trends that i'm seeing in larger organizations is trying to de-silo content out of the lines of business and or the functional departments right so you know, you've got different product lines that in many ways have their own content marketing strategies or content strategies or even siloed marketing strategies in many cases. And so there's a real trend to try and de-silo some of that so that, you know, that customer databases aren't separate, so that the marketing strategies aren't separate, and so that they're getting a bit more of a, you know, concerted and cohesive effort going. And then you have the de-siloification, if that's the right word, of brand, PR, sales, marketing, e-team, web team, social team, social CRM team, and so on and so forth. And so 
as all of that starts to get mixed around, what I'm seeing is is that the larger brands are looking at developing this platform specialist as sort of a centralized guru, if you will, of all things platform related, right? So they understand the benefits of Snapchat. They understand the benefits and cons of instant articles versus Facebook and the organic reach. And they understand the Twitter organic and what's going on with Twitter and whether it's going to be around tomorrow and LinkedIn. And they understand what Meerkat versus Periscope really means and what, you know, they they really sort of take it upon themselves to be that landscape, you know, <laughs> in a weird a landscape architect, right? To say this is the architect of plat- architecture of platforms that are out there. What are you trying to do? And let me recommend something that might work for you and really stay current with it. I think it's a it's a it's a skill set that, quite frankly, any size business could use. But but I think it'll become a dedicated job. Obviously, the more the yeah, it's interesting. The, the, I mean, we're right now on the brand side, it's a little bit all over the place. You have it in social. Uh, you you probably you have it in marketing. You have it in IT. Uh, and then, so I, I guess the question is, is that when when do you know the pain is tough enough, bad enough where you can actually put these things together? Because you've got, I mean, right now, and when you go into a big company, they have hundreds of social channels that they're trying to consolidate that they've created over these. So it's it's a big old mess right now. I think I totally agree with you. Uh, but right now, marketers we love we love to create new right. positions. We love to actually silo them out because if you we, <laughs> right. when we work exactly. when we work with let's right. say we're working on a sponsorship agreement with one of our clients. I mean, you've got the demand gen team, and then you've got the brand team, and you've got uh, you've got sure. eighteen different teams that work on here. So I could see you have just a Facebook person and just a Snapchat person, and then somebody will say, "Oh no, no, maybe we should consolidate that." So I'm just rambling. It's just. That's a, no, it's a great should, position. Well, I, it's just very tough for. But this I to think happen. that's the real key here because you know it wasn't that many shows ago that we talked about the 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 BBC sort of reorganizing themselves less around channels and platforms rather than sort of content and how it works for the business. Um, and I think that's a similar perspective that you can have as a CMO or as a person who is aspirationally in the CMO's seat. How can we position this as a strategic person looking at the platforms we should be on in whatever depth, right? It's not like this person has to be a mile deep in every single platform. They just have to be focused on that, right? Yeah. And so in other words, you can bring in the Facebook expert to teach you what in-depth, mile deep you need to understand about – instant articles and you know and and consolidate that and then you could you know maybe you were the expert in google and then you bring in another expert in snapchat and et cetera et cetera but it's somebody responsible for the strategic vision of where content should be on various platforms from a content perspective right not from a not from a channel and platform perspective because you will never scale right you'll yeah. never scale to that level so i think it's a really good perspective to look you know it's the everything old is new again right just like you talked about the program managers who who manage these in the media companies this was a job that was around right where should we be how do we develop audience how do we yeah. look at this and 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 look at it holistically i want to be the platform manager for <laughs> myspace that's what I want to do. <laughs> I wish that would for Tumblr. <laughs> hey, that probably has already happened. So uh, exactly. All right. Hey, we have a wonderful, wonderful sponsor we to talk about. I mean, for this do. second new week in a row. That's exactly right. Special thanks to our sponsor this week. Go to webinar. Robert, did you yes. did you know 
Did you know? And if you don't, you're not listening to me every week when I talk about this, that webinars are consistently rated as the number one marketing tactic. I've heard that rumor, For lead generation with over 60%. That's six out of 10 marketers. I don't know if you knew that. Did you do the math? 60% of all marketers utilizing (laughs) webinars. Don't make me do math. But many businesses still struggle with how to find their target audience and deliver the right message. Luckily for us, I'm so blessed that there is a simple five-step plan. The keys to using webinars for successful lead generation go from (gasps) daunting Daunting to to doable. doable. That's exactly right. From finding your audience and developing engaging content to authentic interaction and webinar promotion, you'll discover the five steps to attract your target audience to your next webinar. You really do need to download this. If you haven't yet, shame on you. Go support our sponsor. It's a really great piece of content. Bitly.com slash go to webinar dash attract dash audience. Bitly.com slash go to webinar dash attract dash audience. You can also go to thisoldmarketing.com and download it directly. It's I think they've been the sponsor for like six weeks in a row or something like that. It's so just fabulous. You can get any one of those six. I'll have it up there. Make sure you support our wonderful sponsor. And thanks again to Long. go to webinar. Long-term sponsor, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It is time for your favorite segment of the show, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for our rants and raves section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave that makes us feel really old or really young. And so let's see. You have this. I have the soul marketing. And so you are first. I, and I have, and because I was, I've been ranting this whole podcast. I have two short. <laughs> oh, good. I have two short raves. So the thank, I, thank God, everybody's like, thank goodness. Although people like it when we rant, but anyways, um, this is really quick, and this was sent to me by my friend Steve Beyer that works for uh, Leisure Media Three Sixty, and he sent this to me through LinkedIn, and this was a, a letter. And we'll put it in the show notes so you can see it, but it's fascinating. It's a letter that was included in a, in Lego sets from 1974. And the letter, I'm going to read this because it's so cool. It says, two parents. It's got a Lego logo on it. It says, to ur- uh, the urge to create is equally strong in all children, boys and girls. It's imagination that counts, not skill. You build whatever comes into your head the way you want it. A bed or a truck, a dollhouse or a spaceship. A lot of boys like dollhouses. They're more human than spaceships. A lot of girls prefer spaceships. They're more exciting than dollhouses. (laughs) The most important thing is to put the right material in their hands and let them create whatever appeals to them. Sincerely, Lego. So I just thought that that was interesting that they put. Isn't that awesome? That's something. I mean, that was 1974. That was progressive. I know the ad. I know the ad of which you you speak. So we'll we'll put that little picture in the show notes so you can see that. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Thanks, Steve, for sending that on. And this one is an article. This is from firstround.com from um, featuring Contently CEO Joe Coleman, and it's called Content is Eating the World. Now, for the most part, if you read this article, it would be a compilation of what we at CMI have been talking about for the last eight years. But I love <laughs> – I really love the reminders. So, like, if you need – a reminder as to why we do what we do and get to the very heart of the approach. It's a really good article to send to um, to some of your teammates, to your executives, whatever. So just a couple highlights. I'm going to read through a couple of these and then, sure, I'll, then yeah. I'll send it off to you. So Joe says, I think we're actually seeing a correction right now in content marketing. Brands are starting to step back and ask, what are we getting out of content? Is it working or not, says Coleman. 
This has made it a bigger challenge for the people who call themselves content marketers, but is also raising the bar in good ways across the board. I just thought that that was interesting that he sees that we've yeah. been seeing that for quite some yeah. time. So it's just I love that he calls it a correction. Yeah. Nice to see that. That was the first time I've really seen it as correction because we've we've called it. I guess we have called it a correction on occasion, but it's just interesting to see that. That and he's saying taking a positive spin that this is good. So he goes on and says. Every content marketer should get six months to make something happen before their work is questioned, says Coleman. A three-month <laughs> trial doesn't work. You have to remember you're dependent on other people. Experiment constantly. Pull a lot of levers and wait for momentum to build on itself. After six months of this, you should have something to show for it. I actually believe I hope you can get nine months at least, but I like the whole idea of three months just isn't going to cut it. If you're only going to give your team three months, just forget it. Yeah. Um, well, here's I mean, I think the important thing not to interject too much here, but but the, I, I think the important thing is not to su- not to confuse success of the platform for contribution to the business. Right. So if you're building a platform and its ultimate goal is to produce 25 percent more leads, let's say in that six months, maybe it's producing 10 percent more leads. Right. But but what what the key question is to ask yourself is what success does the platform need first? In order to generate 10% or 25% more leads, we need 1,000 subscribers or 1,500 subscribers or whatever it is, and that's your first metric. That's the six-month mark. That's when you know things are working. Are you creating subscribers? Not are you contributing to the business, unless, of course, you are, unless that's your goal. So an important distinction there, right? I love love that. Thank you for the uh, clarification. So a couple – there's like – Three more quotes here I want to read, and then I'll, I'll shoot it over to you. So, And th- we just talked about this. Email is your ticket to building a good feedback loop early on, even if you have 10 subscribers. Email is almost always more valuable than social media. I just thought that was interesting. Um, right. And I like that. This is what I really liked here. Um, there's, these last two were cool. Uh, Joe says, consistency and timing also gives you, as a company or content marketer, more ability to test and try a lot of different things like headlines, formatting, use of images, types of stories. You want to control timing as a variable to find out how these other attributes resonate one at a time. I love that. I mean, yeah. We talk about consistency yeah. and how important, but it's so important you can't test things unless you're consistent. So I love that whole idea uh, on that one. And then this final one uh, is says, you need to find the white space where you can do something no one else is doing, a topic area you can truly own. And what I really love about that is the white, the idea of the white space. And yeah. it's what's interesting is, and I and I'm actually this is my newsletter for for this week. I'm talking about that quote in particular, and, and white space in graphic design is is always also called negative space. Sure, so of course. you're playing off each other, and you need the negative space to to move in balance with everything else on the page so that you get the best possible user experience. And for years, and this was back in when publishers really got cheap on the B2B side, and I was around a lot of this, they would get rid of all the white space. And they would basically put so much text on a page because they wanted to 
basically save money. So they wanted to print less and less pages. So they would do that and they would fill all the other pages with advertising and they have a really profitable issue. And I think that's what's happening in my head. That's what's happening right now with a lot of content marketers is they're trying to create so much content and fill every little gap. And they realize that it's not our job to communicate everything that we possibly know to our customers and our audience. Our our (laughs) job is to find the white space, to find something we can truly own. And that's what it made me think about this whole thing. So I really like the article. It's really long. It's like 3,000 words or something. But I picked out those uh, key quotes, and I just thought they were great takeaways for the show. That's I love that. I lo- and, it, and it really it's, – it's fun because it dovetails nicely with my rave this week, um, which comes from uh, – do, do you know Marketing Tech Blog? Do you know Douglas Carr? I do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I haven't seen – Douglas Carr in my inbox or in my browser screen for some time. And I ended up finding this. This is about measurement, right? So the the title of his blog post, I just wanted to rave about the blog post, quite frankly, because I just absolutely adored this post. Um, I mean, it's if you're into measurement and you want to geek out, this is this is the geekiest blog post that you've seen in a while. And it's the the what I loved about it so much was and, and the name of the blog post is uh, what's cost uh, acquiring basically acquiring a customer versus retaining a customer. And he starts out the blog post by saying basically there's this prevailing wisdom that the cost of acquiring a new customer is four to eight times of retaining an existing one. And he fully admits that, you know, it's prevailing wisdom because, quite frankly, the sources for that are sort of hard to find about what, you know, actually you, you know, you'll actually see. But what is really kind of indisputable is the fact that it's more expensive. Is it four times more expensive? Is it eight times more expensive? Is it 16 or 32 times more expensive? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It's more expensive. It's a good thing if you can retain a customer. And so he then starts to go through all of these different formulas where you can actually start to look at measurement about customer retention, customer, customer attrition, lifetime value of customer, customer acquisition costs, all these different ways to do measurement across all sorts of different goals. And I just think applied to a content marketing approach where you look at, if you're looking to try and build a business case for content marketing, one of the toughest ones that I often see is, yeah, 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 more leads, better leads, great, lead funnel velocity, wonderful, wonderful. But if you can start at one of my favorite places to play with content marketing is at that loyalty, retaining of customers stage. It's just such a great place to start because, quite frankly, it's an it starts with an audience you already know, which is your customer. You already know who these people are. And so if you can build them into an engaged audience that re- makes them stay longer, decreases their cost of service, d- decreases their cost of churn, de- you know, all of these things helps you basically build a case to retain a customer rather than sort of acquiring a new one. It's such a wonderful place to start. And this is like a master class in a blog post of, of how to actually do that. And so I just hats off to, to, to Douglas, uh, who I, I haven't seen in forever, and just a great, great post. Oh, I, now I have to check that out. I have not, oh, I've just, not yeah, seen it, so I, I definitely it's, will. It's full-on geek. Yeah, it's a, it's a full-on geek fest for, for, for measurement. And it's just a – and there's an infographic that goes with it, and it's just, it's, just a really good, it's just a really good post. Well, I'll put on my special orange geek hat before I read the article <laughs> so that yeah. I, I'm on the same way. I'm like, okay, I have, uh, I have this whole marketing. You this do week. indeed. Fantastic. Okay. 
<laughs> so, if you are a regular listener to this show, and I hope you are, you know that I am a big fan of Lynn Manuel Miranda. And Miranda is the creator of my favorite musical of all time, and it's called In the Heights. And if you haven't seen it, you have to go see it. It, it came out, won the Tony Award, like 08, 09, something. It's a fantastic show. Um, and his newest musical, Hamilton is now the darling of Broadway. Actually, Robert, I was I was in New York recently, and I came over the bridge uh, from LaGuardia, and there's three huge posters for Hamilton promoting the, the Broadway show. And by the way, oh, nice. tickets are sold out through the rest of the year. Like if oh, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you, like, you want to get a ticket, you're going to spend like 1000 bucks on resale to get it. That's so, right. Anyways, I haven't seen it yet, but I would really like to. If anyone has tickets and would like to take me, I'm listening. <laughs> anyways, Hamilton is the story of ha- Alexander Hamilton based on the book by Ron Chernow. And so I'm currently in the middle of reading that super interesting book. And you know, it's funny. Last I told you on the last episode about Disney Wars, that was like 550 pages. Uh, Alexander Hamilton's like 800. So I'm getting into that one. That'll take me a while to get through. But Oh, the biography? Um, yeah, the biography. So I'm reading oh, the biography, Alexander it's an Hamilton. Amazing. Have oh, you seen? Have you read it? Book. Oh, he's uh, – so I don't know if I've ever told you. I'm a founding father sort of revolutionary history. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know you read about, this book. Oh my gosh! Yes, it's it's a fabulous. Oh book. man, we could do. Let's go do another podcast on that. We could really bore people. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, um, so I'm reading the book, and then, and you know, in the in the book, he talks about the Federalist Papers. So, the Federalist, later becoming known as the <clears throat> Federalist Papers, were a collection of 85 articles and essays from Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay between October 1787 and August 1788. Now, the goal of the Federalist Papers was to influence the American people and members of Congress to ratify the U.S. Constitution. The essays and the articles were delivered in multiple formats, running them in uh, a a publication called The Independent Journal, a semi-weekly New York business publication, and additionally in something called The New York Packet and The Daily Advertiser. And by the way, it's important to note that the, the temporary capital of the U.S. at that time was New York. So New York, it wasn't Washington, right. D.C. moved about 10 years later. So yeah. in addition, these essays were collected into a book format, two volumes in 1788 called The Federalist and also known as The New Constitution. At this time, no one anywhere had been as prolific as Hamilton, Madison, and Jay in producing up to four articles a week sometimes on the topic of the Constitution and ratifying it and why it was such a good thing. Now, overall, while there's no clear proof on whether the Federalist Papers had impact on all the states ratifying this is questionable, but it seems to have made the most impact on New York, which was the key target state where the Constitution was ratified in New York on July 26, 1788. Now, the Federalist Papers had a, a coherent vision, outline, and structure led by Hamilton, who wrote the sheer majority of essays, and I think of he wrote like 59 of the 85 or something like that. It was in the 50s for sure. Now, I'm, I'm not sure you can call this content marketing by any means, <laughs> but it was a well-organized, content-driven attempt to push for ratification of the U.S. Constitution and definitely had a major impact on the Constitution finally being ratified in 1788. And that's this week's This Old Marketing, and maybe not quite our oldest, because I think we had a Ben Franklin example, but one of our oldest ever on This Old Marketing. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, here we are in the political season, right? And so what a great, you know, what a great example that, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, what it reminded me of when you were talking was sort of the you know sort of the the velocity of blogging, right? So what they were really doing was blogging, right? And they were and or you can even look at it as social media because they were basically posting. You know, it was almost like Medium, right? It was like a you know here's this week's edition, and I'm writing a three thousand word you know sort of diatribe on this particular issue of the Constitution, and we're socially posting it out everywhere we can get it. Well, so what's so interesting, and and uh, there was a I was listening to an interview from Seth Godin recently, and he said basically every he wants to write every blog blog post like it would be his last, and what they said about oh, wow. what they said about Alexander Hamilton was that he's writing like he's running out of time. He wrote so much. Oh yeah, he was hugely prolific. He wrote oh, you're going to love this book. He you're wrote more than any. Book. Well, I'm, I've, I mean, I've listened to the sound, Hamilton soundtrack a thousand times as well. So I mean, I, I know the general story, but I'm already into. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a little different. It's a little. It's a little. I'm just, it's a little. It's different. a little different. It's, but it doesn't rhyme as much. But I can rap. Yeah, I can't rap this book, but I can rap the soundtrack. So, anyways, that's a whole. It's <laughs> a whole different show. <laughs> Anyways, that's our this old marketing example. Now, where you're you're off to? to I'm Europe, off to right? Brussels. Yeah, I'm off to Brussels, and uh, and then from there I go to Milan, uh, where I'm speaking with the lovely folks at Deloitte. They're having me, and they've invited me in to come and keynote with their uh, their a group of people. They're getting together of all over the world, and they're having it in Milan. So I'm excited to go to Milan. I'm you know a little nervous about going to Brussels, but I'm sure it'll be a wonderful wonderful time. And then I'm home. Yeah, and then I come home. So yeah, so after the after my golf trip, as soon as I get done with that, I'm on to San Diego uh, oh. for the CISO event, which is a show organized trade show organizers event. I'm speaking there. And then I almost I'm, did the I almost did the run. It's not some joke. I did. <laughs> San Diego. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. And then I'm off <laughs> yeah. to Austin for Niche Magazine. Carl Landau, good friend of uh, Content Marketing Institute. Of course, so I'm yeah, Carl. Speaking there, and then I got a quick trip to Minneapolis to to speak at a university there, and then I'm yeah. I'm back home. So it's going to be crazy for both of us. So it is going to be a crazy, crazy go. couple of weeks yeah. for sure. Well, that is it. Then this crazy, crazy week ends with us. And uh, there we go. For Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And, you know, do tweet us up at the hashtag ThisOldMarketing. We absolutely adore those story ideas. Do send them along because they absolutely do make their way into the show. And, you know, if you've got a question and you like that classic email thing, you know, ThisOldMarketing at ContentInstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 125, We hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we talked about today will be in the show notes that will be available within the show itself that publishes on Monday night. And then, of course, on the show post that appears on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.